So, let's read. The two brothers grew farther and farther apart, and their separate kingdoms. That's Oliver James. Oliver has amassed millions of views and hundreds of thousands of followers on TikTok. On Fridays, he hosts a morning book club, and he keeps his followers aware of his latest read. What's up? I'm on this journey right now where I'm teaching myself how to read. And one day they had the most terrible quarrel of all, King Azaz. Oliver is one of eight million American adults who are considered functionally illiterate in English. I read this book yesterday called Be the Grapes. I read the whole thing. And I'm happy I did because sometimes reading some of these small books when you don't know how to read and you finish it, it feels good to accomplish something. And this book packed a punch with not much in it. Like you didn't have to say much. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today we're exploring how we learn to read. Listen up. You feel like you out of place? Yeah? You in school and you feel like you're just not getting it? Feel like you're not as smart as everybody else? And truth, maybe people even tell you that. You in classes and you're not getting the work that they're doing. You can't read well. You know, you don't get the social studies, the math, the science. You don't get the, all the different curriculums that they give you. I understand. I'm 34 years old and I still struggle today. But I'm going to tell you something. Don't let nobody label you. We must advertise Wilbert's notable quantities. Apostrophe. Not his taste. I don't even know. Oh, my gosh. My brain's freaking. Uh, come on, let's go. Later in the show, blind spots oh, okay, in it. early literacy Not education. Walk into classrooms and think that the child is reading well, and parents think the child is reading well because they sound great. You know, their reading sounds like talking, it's fluent, but then when you ask the child, hey, can you tell me what's happening in this story? The child doesn't have any idea. But first, what if unlicensed community members were hired to teach the children in their community? My first guest did exactly that. Smitha Mather is a professor of communications at James Madison University. During her time in Florida, she worked with 108 migrant farmers to get them in classrooms full of students who could relate to them and learn from them. Smith, when it comes to schooling for migrant and refugee children, how important is it to have the right teachers? Having the right teacher is everything, in my opinion, because um, it's the teacher who imparts the curriculum. It's the teacher who talks to the parents. It's the teacher who introduces migrant and refugee families to the community. So the teacher plays a very, very central role. You worked with educating migrant students from agricultural families in Florida. Tell me when that was. So I did this for a decade, um, a decade ago. So these children were children of migrant farm workers. Their parents typically left for the field at 7 a.m. in the morning and came back at 7 p.m. And they were picking crops all day long. And the children spent their time in a preschool. These preschools were run by the Redland Christian Migrant Association. And one thing which is very special about Redland Christian Migrant Association, RCMA, is that we hired migrant workers to be teachers of migrant children. So the migrant workers didn't have a formal education, they didn't have certifications, but they had cultural sensitivity and they could harness that cultural sensitivity to teach. And then once we hired them, we helped them go through like intense in-service training. But I think our biggest strength was that migrant workers taught migrant children. Were you ever able to see circumstances up close about what doesn't work for children in terms of teachers when you don't have children that speak the same language or have training in how to do this? I think the biggest problem that we faced was the teachers didn't buy into our curriculum and they didn't think our curriculum was the most appropriate way to approach children. For example, we really wanted them to use play to teach. 
And the migrant workers who became teachers thought play was only for entertainment or it was for relaxation. And they didn't really uh, value play as a teaching tool. Why is play important and what age group are you talking about? So I think play is an important teaching tool across the lifespan. But play is something innate. It's joyful. It's player-centered. And therefore, everyone is wired to play. And if play can teach you social skills, cognitive skills, and emotional regulation, then play is perhaps the best way to teach very young children, like six weeks all the way up to age six or seven. I believe play-based teaching or play-based curriculum is the most powerful way to teach young children. And give me examples of playing and learning for that age group and with especially migrant and refugee children. So one important thing a three and a four-year-old is trying to learn is emotional regulation, right? They are trying to uh, share. They're trying to learn how to develop friendships. And uh, what better place than a playground where they have to share a swing, where they have to take turns, where they have to learn to wait for gratification. And all of this is embedded in play. It's not an instruction. It's like we have two swings and we have three children. One has to wait. And so in anticipation of the play and in anticipation of using the swing, they learn all mm -hmm. these important skills, which then help them learn math and social studies and other things as they grow older. For migrant children, I found that um, they played in the fields, they played in their homes because they weren't supervised by parents. And so their learning was much higher than the learning I see in regular four and five-year-olds in um, standard classroom, like in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Really? So in right. some ways, the migrant children outperformed our regular, typically developing children. And so that was very powerful to observe. Could you also use play for teaching English? An important oh. tool to get these kids ready for the classroom. Absolutely. Um, I did home observations of children playing. And one thing I noticed that they actually uh, used English a lot more at home than they did in school. So in school, they were speaking Mixteco or Spanish. And at home, they were speaking in English, which I thought was a little strange. So I did some deeper observations and I found that when they speak English at home, the parents are so proud of their children and they call the neighbors and they say, look, 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 my child is speaking English. In school, when yes. they spoke English, the teachers were like, your grammar is wrong. This is not how you make a sentence. This is not how you should do it. And so with all those edits and corrections coming from the teachers, the children didn't use English. So home ah. ended up being a place to practice English, try out English, and the best place to teach English. That's fascinating. It is. I've talked to very professional, grown-up men and women who have come to America at a young age who've usually told me, I learned to speak English with, you know, a TV sitcom right. or something. <laughs> yeah. And here they're learning, talking to each other, what they pick up in school. And then all the parents are like so happy and so proud of their children and they really want their children to learn English. That's the other thing I found about migrant parents. They really, really value education. That's the most important goal they have for their children. And even though they don't have the education and even though they don't speak English, they want it for their children at all costs. So they are among the most supportive, involved parents. The other thing I learned about the migrant child is that their attention span is about 28 to 32 minutes. And in a standard classroom, the attention span is no more than 8 to 12 minutes. And so I want to leverage that extended attention span that I see in migrant and refugee children. That's fascinating. Why do you think there's such a difference? So through my observations, and I have not really published this, which I should, I found that when migrant children play and when they interact with each other, there are multiple themes embedded within their main theme. So if they're talking about 
I saw a turtle. They have like many layers of describing the turtle, what the turtle eats, what other things he does. And so because they have themes within themes within themes, like the Russian dolls, Mm -hmm. each theme might be eight to 10 minutes, but then they can stay on topic for a very long time. Do you think it's not having digital media? The time I did my observations, they did not have too much digital media. Um, So I'm not sure if I can make that connection. What about finding the right teachers for these students? How did you recruit teachers, find them, and persuade them to do this work? That's an excellent question. So that was an interesting thing. At that time, I taught at the University of South Florida. I went to the fields where the people were actually working, and I motivated them to get into the university, and I got them ready to get into college. We translated the application forms into six or seven languages spoken in Latin America, instead of making assumptions like everybody speaks Spanish, because a lot of our people spoke Mixteco. I did small group meetings where we actually filled out the form. And then I worked with the university to change the receiving climate. For example, most universities have students do gen ed courses first, and then they go into their area of study, like child development. And at USF, we flipped it. They were all experts at knowing their children. So we had them do their regular courses first and gen ed courses next. And that helped people actually enroll. I had them come into my classes to just observe what it would be like to be a teacher. Uh, We gave them incentives, like I paid for their tuition, I paid for their books, I paid for childcare, I did Saturday tutoring. Um, When I say I paid, it was through a grant, through Helios Education Foundation. So it wasn't Smitha's personal money, of course, but everything got paid for, including eight hours on Saturday, where we actually sat down and did homework. I'm so impressed with this. You grew your own teachers. Exactly. When you needed more. Exactly. But we made sure of one thing. The culture of the children and the culture of the teacher was the same. So we only recruited people from the communities in which the children lived. The standard model is to hire people who are already licensed and trained, but we did it the other way around. They got their license and they got their training after they got hired. But we struggled, like math was so hard for my migrant teachers. And we had to actually talk to the math professor and say, can you customize your course without watering it down. So could you change the way you pose problems? So for example, you know, they have questions like if a plane was flying northeast at this speed and another plane was flying southwest at this speed, where would they meet? And my migrant teachers couldn't care less. Like who cares where the plane would meet? (laughs) But if you ask them, a school has 40 students and the child-teacher ratio should be five is to one, and three teachers called in sick, how would you distribute the teachers and the students? It's the same math problem, but they could do it in a jiffy. So we actually changed the way we taught math, and then they got through it. But in the end, 108 farm workers became elementary teachers. I'm just That's phenomenal. so thrilled with that outcome. And every time I have a low moment, I think about my teachers. Some of them went on to get master's degrees in social work and their children are now lawyers. So education just made a huge difference. Well, Dr. Smitha Mather, thank you for talking with me and sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Smitha Mather is a professor of communications at James Madison University. A lot of students can sound out words, but they can't quite connect the sound to the meaning of the word. 
Kelly Cartwright is a professor of teacher preparation at Christopher Newport University. Years of classroom visits led her to a major realization that the distance between sound and meaning is a matter of executive function. Kelly Cartwright has been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Kelly, many students can sound out words but don't necessarily comprehend what they're sounding out. You've come to realize this is a case of what you call executive dysfunction. What is that? Teachers all over the country, this is something they see all the time. You walk into classrooms and they think that the child is reading well, and parents think the child is reading well because they sound great. You know, their reading sounds like talking, it's fluent, but then when you ask the child, hey, can you tell me what's happening in this story? The child doesn't have any idea. And quite often what we see from the research is that these children, they have what we call executive skill difficulties. Executive skills are mental processing skills that are associated with your frontal lobes in your brain, but they're like a chief executive of a company. You can think of the word executive that way. We use and recruit these skills to manage complex activities like reading. And reading is a lot more complex than just sounding out the words. Just because we can do that doesn't mean that we're going to also weave together the meanings of what we read. And so often these children, we find that they're not flexible. They focus on the sounding out, but they don't focus on or they can't shift their attention to meaning or they have trouble holding things in mind, like the meaning of a story while progressing through and updating that meaning, you know. So it's, I think that mental management is what might be missing for some. What age range mostly are you talking about with children from what to what age? I think typically we start to see these difficulties emerge about, say, second grade. In first grade, you're learning how to decode words. But as you become more fluent and you're not able to shift your attention to meaning, we see as as you become more fluent that the meaning isn't coming together. And that's where teachers and parents begin to notice those difficulties. Give me some simple examples of children doing this where they don't have that problem and others where they do. Okay, so let's say I'm a teacher in a classroom and I am sitting with my students and we are reading a book together or I have my students reading silently and then I may ask them questions. The students may all, if I had them read with me individually, they might all read aloud to me beautifully and they they sound fine, but it's when they can't answer those comprehension questions afterward. Another another way that we see these these kinds of difficulties emerge are, are when children are reading fast just to get done first, but the meaning is not something that they even think matters. Do you think this comprehension part is hard to fix in a child? It depends. Sometimes what we see is that a child may have received instruction focusing only on word recognition without specific instruction and comprehension. Even you and I, you know, we may be sitting reading a magazine article or a book and our minds wander and we realize, oh, I I didn't catch that page that I just read through. Let me go back and reread it. Some children just don't know that making meaning is the purpose and that they need to go back and reread or they don't have the strategies they need. But these are things that can be explicitly taught. How much do you find is instruction? Like, can you catch a lot of this and fix a lot of this by training teachers to recognize it and know what to do? Oh, gosh, yes. I I think if a teacher, a practicing teacher, a pre-service teacher, if they don't receive training that helps them to understand all of the many important things they need to do to help a child learn to read, they're not going to be well-equipped to be able to do that once they're in the classroom. So it's giving the teachers the know-how and not just, you know, the theoretical ivory tower kind of know-how, but the this is what I go walk into the classroom on Monday morning and do with my students kind of know-how. Do you also find there are many teachers 
who are tasked with teaching reading to young children who haven't really been given formal instruction and are sort of doing it instinctively and through what they've learned? I think instruction in how to teach reading has varied considerably across teacher preparation programs. And so from teacher to teacher, from person to person in classrooms, you may not see that everyone has the same background. And I think that's where school districts and administrators need to come in and make sure that the professional development and the programs that we're providing are really based in that scientific evidence on what we know works to to bring all children to that place where they can read. What percentage of children would you imagine in a second grade classroom, or would it be first grade, might exhibit this executive dysfunction when it comes to, hey, I can read really well, seems great, but doesn't really get what they just read? Typically, what the estimates, the research estimates show is that anywhere from 10 to 30% of struggling readers or struggling comprehenders, children who are having trouble understanding what they read um, for a variety of reasons, about 10 to 30% of those can decode the words but still don't comprehend. What do you do to help them, assuming you have enough time and support to do it? Well, first, I think we need to figure out what pieces might be missing for them. Is it that they don't have that planful approach to reading? Do they not realize that they need to read for meaning? Planning is a very important executive function ability. And so that if they don't understand that the purpose of reading is to make meaning, that's a step in the right direction, but also they may have other executive function difficulties that come up in, say, a school psychologist evaluation. The school psychologist may say, oh, working memory difficulties or, you know, inhibitory control or cognitive flexibility. So those are some of the basic executive functions. But what do we do with that in a reading classroom? Well, those working memory problems may come up as difficulty making inferences, or they may not be able to apply strategies that we know help comprehension, like visualizing or rereading or making connections to our prior knowledge. And all of those things are extra processes that must be coordinated at the same time as that sounding out piece. Checking to see that they can is one piece, so that assessment piece. A second piece that's important is then for children who have those executive skill problems, providing concrete supports. So if a child has trouble, say, making an inference from a text because they their working memory skills don't support holding the text information in mind while they're connecting to other things they know, then you put that out on the ta- on the table in front of them. You can use graphic organizers, inference maps, things like that, so that they can see how this invisible inference process can be made to help them understand texts. And often what the interventions that support these executive skill difficulties do is put those invisible processes out in front of the child on the table in concrete ways so that they can see them and don't need to hold them in mind completely. Is this something that comes largely from just being in an environment where you didn't do much reading or hear or see much reading from a very young age? Well, I think that what happens with children that have experienced a lot of reading or have experienced being read to. They hear narratives. They learn through conversation how to make inferences and and the like. Children with lots of practice with those things have more language knowledge and have more comprehension of the kinds of language that we find in books than children who don't experience those things. And we often see that those differences in children's backgrounds play out in school and differences in academic abilities. So yes, I would, I would say that their early experiences do matter, certainly. It sounds like this is a widespread problem that we really need to address as a civilization, right? Helping children younger with more skilled reading early on across all families. 
Yes. Well, I think something to keep in mind, I mean, as a civilization, is that literacy really is the path to opportunity in life for all of us. So literacy predicts how far you'll go in academics. It predicts how far you'll go in your employment and your attainment in your job. And People with low literacy skills have significant anxiety. They have significant depression. They have significant shame. And you can't fill out a job application if you can't read. You can't do most jobs if you don't have a certain level of literacy skills. And low literacy even predicts incarceration and criminality. So really, when we're helping children learn to read, that's really setting children on the path to opportunity. We're setting them on a trajectory of advantage. Do you think this sort of delay between word identification and the meaning of passages could be helped by giving more culturally relevant passages to children, things that really excited them? Cultural relevance is really important because it any personally relevant text draws on a reader's background knowledge. So it would be like me, I I know a little about physics, but not much. If I pick up a physics textbook, you know, that's not going to really, I'm I'm not going to have enough background knowledge to comprehend it well or to be engaged with that text. Sorry for all my physics friends out there, but If I pick up a text on something that excites me or that I have a lot of background knowledge on, I'm going to understand it better. And so having texts in classrooms that match what readers are excited about and match what the readers know is going to help them to comprehend those texts. This is an important distinction to make here that what makes children love reading isn't just those culturally and personally relevant texts. It's also making sure that the children actually can lift those words off of the page as well. You hear more and more about young children really getting into graphic novels and wanting to decode and learn to read them because the pictures are so fascinating. Things like Captain Underpants and there's lot of related series. <laughs> what, yes. Where do you fall on that? They all get kids reading, and that's the important part. I've, I've heard of families telling their, their kids, no, you must read chapter books, and then when you're done, you can read these graphic novels. If they want to read, let them read. Well, Kelly Cartwright, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. It has been a pleasure talking with you today. Kelly Cartwright is a professor of teacher preparation at Christopher Newport University. She's been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. We've all been there. After the class completes an assignment and the teacher goes over the correct answers, then she gets to that one question that you got wrong. And you find out you're the only one who got it wrong. And apparently to everyone else, that answer was obvious. And you're embarrassed. But imagine it didn't have to be that way. Sometimes children don't feel humiliation if they're in a classroom that's created a culture where it's okay to make mistakes. And in fact, I always tell my children, if you know the answer, what's the point? Like, there's nothing else to learn. You should move on and think of something you don't know. Yeah. Now imagine your teacher was allowed to wonder and be wrong, too. Right. And I think one of the ways that teachers can promote curiosity is also just to model their own curiosity by kind of asking questions that they don't know the answers to. And I think a lot of times that can be hard for teachers because they want to have that view or perception of students that they have the authority and they have knowledge so that children will believe them and listen to them and and want to learn from them. Um, We have a study that we're proposing right now where we want to look at how do children think about teachers who say that they don't know something and they want to, that they wonder about something. And do children see them as kind of less knowledgeable and are they less likely to go to them for answers to their questions? Or are they more likely to become curious about what the teacher wonders and to see that teacher as a curious teacher and also feel like that's a teacher they would want to have and that they could be curious in their classroom? 
Joining me today is Jamie Giroux. She's a curiosity researcher at the University of Virginia's School of Education and Human Development, and she wants to see curiosity at the forefront of learning. Jamie, what about you? What first made you interested or aware of curiosity as a key component of personality? It was an indirect path. I took some classes when I was in high school um, at the community college, and one of those was a human development course. And it seemed like so much of what I read in that class in the textbook was not consistent with my (laughs) observations of children, especially in the real world. How so? Uh, Well, I did a lot of babysitting, and so just things about what children are capable of doing. And I had seen children do so many amazing things. And the book was suggesting, like, oh, they can't do this until this age, and then when they get to this age, they can do this. And it was an older textbook. We know a lot more now. I went up to the teacher, and I was just like, I don't understand. Why should we—why should I believe this, especially when it's different from what I've seen in the real world and what I've experienced? And so that— instructor at the community college introduced me to the idea of research. And I went up to my psychology professor my first semester in college, and she happened to be a postdoc in a research lab and invited me to join and learn how to do research through her lab. And so I switched to a different lab that was looking at Head Start children and their school readiness and how to best prepare them to kind of start school with the highest chances of success and um, kind of trying to get them equal to some of the other groups when you see that opportunity gap between children who typically are in Head Start and other children um, who are more affluent. And so for my senior thesis project, I, look at, I looked at science learning in these Head Start classrooms. And we saw gains not just in science learning, but across the board, and that included curiosity. And so when I thought about what's happening, what is it about science that's helping children to make gains also in math and physical development and emotional development and approaches to learning, I was thinking that it's helping them just to see the meaning behind the learning and to see learning and school as a way to find out more about the things they wanted to know and to kind of help them to feel like they were able to express that curiosity and use that to guide their learning. So that was what made me want to go to graduate school and study curiosity. Do you think children have natural curiosity and then it gets snuffed out by something later in life? Do you think that curiosity diminishes as we get older? So I think definitely humans have curiosity. It is an innate thing that we need to be able to learn what we need to learn to survive. And you know, you have to be able to search to find food and to explore to figure out what's safe and what's not safe in your environment and how to act and how to interact with others. And pretty much everything we do is going to come from the experiences we have. And the experiences we have are motivated when we're children by our own kind of innate desire to want to know what's going to happen or to have a prediction and then test it out and see if we're right. Because we don't have any other kind of external goals that we have to accomplish, right? We don't, we don't have jobs. We don't have chores when we're first babies and toddlers. And there's nothing really that we have to do except to learn and try to understand the world. So that's our job, essentially. And there's so much time and space and expectation given that that's okay and that's what we should be doing. So I don't necessarily think that we become less curious as we get older, but that we become so kind of focused on all of those external things that are expected of us. And we kind of switch from, um, Alison Gopnik talks about how we switch from being explorers to being exploiters. So we've explored and we have this information and we have this knowledge and skills, and then we can start to exploit that to accomplish things that we might want to do in our lives, you know, if we want to do well in school and make our parents proud and then have a good job that makes a lot of money or get good grades on the test or those kinds of things are going to shift the motivation of what we're doing and what information we might be seeking. I always thought some people were more curious than others, that it was sort of a personality component and that some people are simply born with tons of curiosity and others less. What would you say to that? It might be. There are a lot of things that are definitely different from one individual to the next. Um, And there are people who study personality and kind of those more um, individual difference-focused ways of thinking. I do study curiosity as a way of looking at individual differences, but I think about how we can change it. I'm not as concerned with things that are kind of 
the way they are and we can't modify them. And I think most of everything about us we can change. Mostly what you're looking at is how can we promote and grow the curiosity that is natural within children. Yes. And one of the ways that we look at curiosity in school settings is kind of how open children are to uncertainty. And essentially, when you're in school, uncertainty becomes a kind of risk, right? Because if if there's something that seems really hard to do or like a big challenge, the success rate is going to be lower. There was more risk of failing. Remember how embarrassing it was when the teacher would say, and who knows this? And then as you shot your hand up and gave the wrong answer and the teacher would say, eh, not exactly, the humiliation, right? Yeah, well, and sometimes children don't feel humiliation if they're in a classroom that's created a culture where it's okay to make mistakes. Right. And in fact, I always tell my children, if you know the answer, what's the point? Like there's nothing else to learn. You should move on and think of something you don't know because you already know that. And so I think if you kind of see not knowing something and see mistakes as learning opportunities, you're going to end up having more experiences that lead to more information gain and more skill development because you're not doing kind of the things that you already know and just regurgitating that information. So do you think in a school setting that teachers can promote curiosity? Yes. That's the whole goal of our work is to understand how teachers do that effectively and then share that information so that other teachers can learn from those doing it effectively and, and keep doing it. So give me some techniques and give examples of using them. Sure. Uh, so like I was saying, sometimes we just lose the time and space to be curious. And I think that especially happens in school. So the kind of most basic thing that we look at is just how much opportunity is there for children to think and question and participate. So for example, you said, you know, when a teacher asks a question and you shoot your hand up to answer, well, if, if you shoot your hand up to answer and the teacher calls on you answer, everyone else may not have had enough time to even think about it or even wonder, you know, if the teacher just moves on to the next question, what other ways could we have solved that? Is that the only right answer? Are there other ways of thinking about this? And so sometimes we see teachers simply just saying, you know, before you answer, think about how you solve the problem and whether you think other people might have solved it a different way or if you could solve it a different way. And you just having children refocus what they're thinking about from trying to get the right answer to the process and the thinking process specifically of kind of what is happening when they're engaging in solving that problem and getting at some of that divergent thinking that we see with creativity and thinking about different ways of approaching the problem. And we've seen um, a video of a teacher having her students solve math problems, and it was the same problem, and they got the same answer. And I think there were 16 different strategies, and some of them were vastly different than others. And Several of them were things that I didn't even understand from watching the video and had never seen or heard of before, but they worked. And I think that's really helpful for students who might not get it one way, um, but also just the general idea that, yes, we can solve the problem this way, and this is the way we've learned, but that doesn't mean that's the only way. So one day when there's a problem where what we currently do doesn't work, we don't just feel like, oh, too bad. And instead we think, okay, what's another way we might approach this problem or think about solving it that could work? And I think that's what we want children to learn is that mindset of being flexible in your thinking and not focusing so much on the outcome and the performance. Are you focusing mostly on the early learning years or more like middle and high school? I focus on the early years. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing what happens when standardized testing is introduced um, and how that might change the opportunities for promoting curiosity. I would say it would kill it. It depends. Right. If you're in a school where it's just something that happens and the students don't feel like there's a lot of pressure and a lot of focus on it, then maybe it doesn't. Right. If it doesn't take up time. But if it's a school where they're spending a lot of time practicing taking tests, especially when students start to feel a pressure of needing to perform well. <clears throat> like if they think their teacher is going to be evaluated or if it's going to be controlling their opportunities in some way, you wouldn't want children to not care about that and not try to do well. And so then, you know, you have to think about how to balance the goals of what we have for children and, and the goals that they're interpreting from the way that our system is structured and kind of their own motivation for learning. And a lot of what you're saying is that in the end, promoting curiosity is not a closed system. So you're open to a lot of ideas that come up and pursuits that children may be on 
So it's not a tidy process for teachers. No. They can't say, move it, move it, move it. Right. And I think one of the ways that teachers can promote curiosity is also just to model their own curiosity by kind of asking questions that they don't know the answers to. And I think a lot of times that can be hard for teachers because they want to have that view or perception of students that they have the authority and they have knowledge so that children will believe them and listen to them and and want to learn from them. Um, We have a study that we're proposing right now where we want to look at how do children think about teachers who say that they don't know something and they want to, that they wonder about something. And do children see them as kind of less knowledgeable and are they less likely to go to them for answers to their questions? Or are they more likely to become curious about what the teacher wonders and to see that teacher as a curious teacher and also feel like that's a teacher they would want to have and that they could be curious in their classroom. Who have you studied or who has written about this that really interests you? Um, I really love reading anything from Alison Gopnik, who is at UC Berkeley, and she studies children's cognitive development and has that big picture way of thinking. Um, you know, thinking at that framework level of like, what is happening? How are children learning? How are they developing in their cognitive skills? And she did a lot of the early work showing that on a lot of different tasks, children actually outperform adults, uh, which is super interesting to think about because we often think about adults as being the ones that need to teach the children. But being able to recognize the strengths that children bring to learning situations, children are so much better at learning than adults are because they have less knowledge to kind of cloud and interfere with what it is they're trying to learn. And they don't have those external obligations and responsibilities so they can really be focused on understanding. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways why they probably are better at learning than adults, but they are just so great at learning. So um, she's done some work that shows why they're so good at learning. And she has a theory where she thinks about how we shift over time from when we're children and we like to explore and, you know, just search for information in our world and just kind of figure out what it what's happening. We're little scientists in the crib, as she would say. And then as we get knowledge and skills, we switch to being more um people who have responsibilities and want to exploit that knowledge and those skills to be able to accomplish the different goals that we might have. So I love her work in thinking about that and also thinking about how that relates to curiosity and creativity and, um, you know, how we can be curious and find information we need, but then also use it in creative ways. And so that's one of the things that we're thinking about, too, is how are these things related? And there's so many other things I think are related to curiosity, too, like intellectual humility, uh, which is another area my research is going. Because if you can't be open to the idea that you might be wrong about something or not know something or not have the best way of thinking about it or approaching something, then why would you even become curious, right? You have to first be humble enough to recognize that there are things that you don't know to be curious and search out that information or you know, be humble in understanding that your thinking might be different from someone else's thinking and that you might get some value of understanding other people's perspectives to then become curious and ask them for their perspectives. And then, of course, that's going to expand the way you can think about the world because you are so limited when you only have your own perspective and your own way of thinking. So I think there's a lot of really interesting things that relate to curiosity. You know, you mentioned the standards of learning, and we all know that the pandemic really set kids back because it was so hard to learn via Zoom or under the circumstances. I wonder if there may be a kind of unexpected silver lining from all the regression that kids seem to have experienced where the grown-up world decides, you know what, we can do education differently than we did it before. Reset time. Yeah, I think definitely I don't know that it's happening as much as we might want it to. I think one way we see this a lot is just giving grace and being okay with the idea that it's more important to support children and support everyone in our communities than to accomplish whatever it is we feel like we need to accomplish, which is usually not that meaningful of a goal. And so I do think in some ways that has continued and is a really great change for schools and the focus on social-emotional learning and having children learn how to cope with hard things and how to communicate what's going on so that they can get help if needed. I think those are changes that have happened. I think there's just so much focus on those test scores that that's going to keep driving the 
the structure and the goals of education around assessment and those numbers that aren't necessarily meaningful, right? So yes, children might not have learned those things, but they probably learned other things that aren't reflected on those tests. And who gets to decide what matters? You know, why did, why is it more important to learn a specific math strategy right now in this grade than to develop your resiliency or learn the technology skills that were needed to be able to navigate, you know, Canvas and PowerPoint and or Google Slides and um, Zoom and all of these things at the same time while also listening to the teacher and interacting with your classmates and hearing your parents working in the background and your siblings on their classrooms. And, you know, I think there were a lot of skills and things that children had to develop that were missing and not giving them credit for. You are also not just a scholar, but a mother of three young children, age 13, 10, and 3. Do you find that having a ringside seat to the lives of these three young people has really enhanced your own work? Yes, definitely. And I think it goes both ways. You can always tell what I'm studying by the things that my children are saying. I remember once when we were driving into downtown Memphis and my oldest, who I think was probably about four and a half at the time, said, Mommy, there's a square-based pyramid-shaped building. (laughs) Because at the time I had been studying spatial skills and spatial development. Um, So I think definitely what I'm studying rubs off on them. And also I see them and I see the ways that they're interacting with their friends and the ways that they're interacting with their toys and the things that they're saying. And it helps me to understand how they're thinking and what they're thinking. And that helps to give me a lot of great ideas. And they also like to help me, especially when they don't want to go to bed. I remember my oldest one saying when she was probably only three, she said, Mommy, I have an idea. Instead of going to bed, how about if we make a video of how kids learn science? Because I had used her in so many videos to have for teaching. <laughs> <laughs> Let's appeal to your interests. <laughs> Do you see curiosity in them from a, a super young age? Did you see the curiosity of them as babies? Oh, yes. Um, You know, even just interacting with their toys or even not even with their toys. I remember when they would be on a blanket outside and you could just tell that they were staring at the grass, like trying to figure something out. And you could see the motivation when they couldn't crawl yet, but they managed to wiggle and wiggle to get to that piece of grass and grab it and and put that flower in their mouth or, (laughs) you know. So they were trying to understand the world and they were motivated. You could tell there was complete intrinsic motivation to seek out the information that they were trying to get. And it developed as they as they acquired information. And it is really important to teach children stuff, right? It shouldn't just be children learning whatever they're curious about in the moment because you need knowledge to become curious about more and more advanced things. So as they would learn more, then becoming curious about that information. Um, so for example, I would tell my daughter, instead of saying, the sun is going down, which is not correct and gives us gives children the misconception that the sun is moving around the earth, I would always say, oh, we're, the earth is turning away from the sun. It's getting dark. We have to go inside. And one day, she was probably only about three years old, and she said, ah, I wish the earth would just stop turning. <laughs> <laughs> and I explained gravity instead of, you know, and, and why that might not be ideal, and, and we talked about it. And then she just started asking questions about that for years. You could tell, and it would become more and more advanced. So a couple years later, she asked if her body has gravity. And um, and then I think probably three or four years after that, she questioned, why is it gravity? And she said, could it be something else? And then we had a discussion about words and what creates the meaning of the words and shared understanding of what words mean. And does it matter if we call it gravity or something else? It's more about what it is. And, you know, just really interesting questions and thoughts. And from those questions, you can really understand, like, wow, children are thinking deeply about all of the experiences they're having. And they're making connections and they want to understand the world and they want to learn about all of the things that we're trying to teach them in school, but in a way that makes sense and is meaningful for them. What's the simplest advice you have for teachers that do have heavy workloads and they are meeting the standards of learning, but they'd like to incorporate something that fosters more curiosity on the part of their kids? I think sometimes we try to do too much and it's almost more effective to do less. So instead of stressing about trying to figure out what to do and create all of these high-quality experiences for children to have, let them kind of take some of the lead and 
take a seat, you know, take a seat back, take a back seat, and observe what are, what are they thinking about, what are they talking about, how can we make what it is we want to teach more meaningful for them, and then they'll take the lead, and you can kind of more scaffold instead of directing what's happening. And I think it doesn't have to be stressful. I think it is stressful when you're being told what to teach. And sometimes, maybe often, teachers are told how to teach. And I think that's where you feel like your hands are tied and you don't have that much flexibility. So I think it's not on the teachers as much as kind of the system and the administrators and the policymakers and thinking about how to give teachers the, the freedom because teachers know curiosity is important. And teachers are curious, and like they, they would love to explore all different things that they're curious about with their students. And I think it's just creating a system where that's more possible for them to do, and they're not as restricted in what they are supposed to be doing and how, just like children feel restricted in thinking that they're supposed to be at school to learn what the teacher is telling them to learn, not what they're curious about. I think teachers feel the same thing, right? That that they're supposed to be teaching what they're supposed to be teaching in the way that they're being told to teach it. I think that's such great advice. Jamie Giroux, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you, it was a pleasure. Jamie Giroux is a curiosity researcher at the University of Virginia's School of Education and Human Development. She wants to see curiosity at the forefront of learning. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Casto and Liliana Bukowski are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. To comment or for the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.